0: But he's actually differentiating between the true self, that body, mind, emotion, will, and inmost being. He's differentiating between that and this thing in me that is my self-sufficient mishandling of my pain and my vulnerability. So if we think about the rocks and the rubble in the gold mine, that's our sin and our brokenness. And our job is to really believe what's true in Genesis one and two about who we are, God's image in us, our preciousness, our value like gold, and to realize that that's our truest identity. Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, God has turned our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. We might translate that as God has taken our heart that's covered with rubble and debris and he's pulled out this gold inside. And I think that's what Paul concludes. Who will rescue me from this? Well, it's Christ who has united himself with me, and that's the place of the goal.
1: That was Michael J. Cusick, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, my guest today is Michael John Cusick. Michael J. Cusick is my friend and my coach, my spiritual director, my counselor, my brother in Christ, and he is amazing. Uh, Michael, welcome.
0: Well, thank you. It's we've we've talked about this for so long. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's it's a pleasure. Well, I've been on your podcast, and that was a blast. And then we um Restoring the Soul, got to get the name there for your incredible podcast, for anybody interested in therapy. Um, you, I mean, it's just incredible. Your guests are amazing, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's so such a good podcast. But Michael, you're also the, I guess, president, CEO, top dog of Restoring the Soul in terms of the, the counseling. So say a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so Restoring the Soul is not just a podcast, uh, but it is a ministry that I started almost 20 years ago. And we're in Denver and we do intensive counseling, primarily with Christian leaders, pastors, uh, other uh, clergy, and out of bounds ministers, chaplains, and missionaries. And um, what an intensive is, is people come to Colorado for three hours a day for one or two weeks, depending on the the goals that they have. And it's a, it's a, an opportunity for real deep dive into either our personal brokenness or to the hunger in our heart to know God more. And mm-hmm. I call it integrated clinical soul care or because I love acronyms, ICSC. So there's a clinical foundation that's that's really rooted in interpersonal neurobiology and attachment and the understanding of trauma and the best of psychology and counseling skills. And also a deep rooting in contemplative spirituality, spiritual formation, some of the historic ideas about spirituality and growth from the church and that you've spent your career, you know, unpacking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was personally really drawn um, to Restoring the Soul, Michael. I mean, when I read about you and read about all that you were doing and I thought, man, I need to tune up. I need to I need to, to go under the the. The microscope. I need to have someone examine my soul, and 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 uh, and you certainly were that for me, doctor of my soul, soul doctor, Michael J. Cusick, and um, forever grateful for uh, the time that you and I have been able to spend on so many levels. So I'm really glad just to have an opportunity for the listeners of the Things Above podcast to hear from you, because um, what I've learned from you, it's so deep. I mean. You know, in our times together, I'm always taking notes. I'm always just trying to learn from from you, and uh, the the things that I learned about the nature of the soul, and um, and I want us to talk about that today. That's a big one, certainly for our listeners, because you know we talk about things above, set our minds on things above. Our minds are a big part of our souls, and so we want to talk about soul and um, and attachment stuff that I think is fascinating and you are so, so good at understanding what that is and explaining it. Maybe even talk a little bit about shame and sin. And then of course your, your big mega hit book, Surfing for God. Uh, We can talk about that as well if we have time. If not, we'll do another one of these podcasts because there's so much. So I got a bunch of S's. I got soul, I got shame, I got um, security stuff with attachments, maybe sin, who knows what we're going to talk about. But um, Michael, where would you want to start us off just in general, knowing a little bit maybe about our listeners, folks who are in the spiritual formation world? And if you could just say like, what, what, would, what would you want to say to them about what you know about the human person and the soul?
0: Well, I would start by saying I love the title of your podcast. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Colossians and Colossians 3, and Dallas Willard was one of the impetuses to me memorizing chunks of Colossians. And so I, I think my experience and most of what I'll be saying today comes out of this intersection of knowledge from earning a couple of graduate degrees and training but it also comes out of my own journey of brokenness uh, that includes uh, alcoholism and deep, deep encounters with shame and addiction and compulsion. And I unpack a lot of that in Surfing for God, the book. So um, as, I, as I respond to anything, it's out of that context. And, and so my uh, journey has really been about closing the gap. And the gap is between what I believe and cognitively assent to that which is true in the universe, but then what I actually experience. Mm. And I've I've come to call this the delta because in science and engineering and in the military, the Greek letter delta represents a gap between where you are and what your goal is. And so um, that how do we close the gap between, you know, I want to set my mind and my heart, Colossians 3, 1, and 2, on things above but I have a quiet time, I pray, I'm involved in Christian activity and it just seems like I can't stay there. I can't be rooted. It can't be sustained. And uh I answered that question with well, the answer must be that there's something wrong with me. I'm not doing it right. I'm not doing it enough. And then as shame and despair grew of I'm weary and I can't try any harder, then I started to go in the direction of well, there must be something wrong with God and maybe this whole Christianity thing is false. And I got to the point where I said, uh, during a very dark season of my life where I was caught up in a lot of addiction and compulsion, I said, God, if this is all there is to Christianity, uh, and if and if this, quote, good news gospel can't touch what's deep inside of me, then I don't want to be a Christian. There's got to be more than this. And um, some people might think that that's bold, but it really just came out of a sense of weariness. And I think God honored that because there's a number of factors that that open the door to me being able to connect those two ends. And I'm still closing that gap. Uh, Andy Crouch says, and we have this at the beginning of our podcast as our intro, he says, there's two questions that haunt every human life. What are you created to be? And what keeps you from being all that? And that describes the gap. So the thing I'd want to say the most in that context is that for the listener who wants to be able to set their heart and their minds on things above, the way that you can enhance that, accelerate that, and the image out of Colossians, uh, or I'm sorry, Philippians three of being rooted and established in love, that's what allows us to focus and give our hearts and minds on things above. The answer is within. So I think there's a, a notion that to grow in our spirituality and our formation in Jesus, that we we look up and out on the things above. And you'd be somebody to help me parse the Greek there with the things above. And I'm sure that that is things above. But we could think of that metaphorically as the things that are outside of us, not in the sense of separateness, but the things that are actually not us, but by being united in christ they actually are us so this us but not us and where do we find that within it begins in our body and i'm addressing several questions here now but what is the soul Uh, dallas willard your writings absolutely positively has this hebrew idea of soul as a holistic idea of body mind emotions will and then i would add our our spirit or our inmost being and the greek idea of soul is really just mind, will, and emotions. So I've lived on the one side of the gap of what I believe, really with the Greek idea. I've got to focus my mind and my emotions and my will through my will by flexing my muscles. And for anybody with compulsions, addictions, um, depression, anxiety, that's going to be very short-lived because we can't flex our, our will enough but when i began to understand the hebrew idea of soul that that god created our bodies obviously but that god loves matter physical material that that jesus resurrected sitting at the right hand of god which is the very next verse in colossians 3 i think that he exists with a body today that a third of the trinity has a human form with cells and molecules and neurons and that's that's actually an important revelation Mm -hmm. And therefore, to pay attention to our body as a window to our spirituality can be really profound. And for people that are in that gap place of how do I do this? uh, It's an attentiveness, which you've talked so much about on this program and in your writings, an attentiveness to uh, not just our, our heart, so to speak, but how our embodied self, whether it's with increased heart rate, Um, you know, stress in the middle of our chest, how we carry the weight and the sorrow of life, for example, during this pandemic, you know, if any of the listeners would stop for 10 seconds, take a deep breath, and think of the word pandemic, and to just allow that to kind of sink into your body. And where do you feel that in your body? That reveals a lot, like a dashboard light on a car that's saying pull over check engine.
1: Hmm. Well, you said a lot right there, and that's one of the things I love about you, Michael, is that you are just this uh, wealth of knowledge. You know, the, the scribe of the kingdom. Dallas used to love quoting that verse: "A scribe of the kingdom is one who brings out treasures old and new." And uh, that's you are definitely a scribe of the kingdom because you're you're talking about the Hebrew, the Greek, the 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 historic, biblical, philosophical views, and then also modern psychology and and what we've come to know. So, well, it's interesting to me that the, the word soukas, which is the Greek word for soul, is in fact the word we use for psychology. That's where we get that. So, but quite often psychologists, we tend to think of the mental side. I think that's what you were talking about with, um, with the Greek side. And we tend to, um, not so much think of it as holistic, even though in the last several years, that's really been changing. With certainly uh, Bessel van der Kirk, um, and you know, and dealing with trauma in the body, um, Gaber Macha's book in the realm of uh, in the realm of hungry ghosts. That's a terrible title, but it's a great book. <laughs> but uh, you and your work too. I mean. Uh, And this is, I think, what I I I think our listeners would really benefit from. I know I did, in terms of my own understanding of formation, and that is, is that for me personally, I always thought about spiritual formation as mostly a matter of my will. That if I just memorized scripture, if I just went to church, if I fasted, if I prayed, doing certain actions by the power of my will, I could fix stuff. And what I've come to Understand through you, working with you, reading your books, listening to your podcasts, uh, reading these other guys I just mentioned, um, is that there's stuff that's um, that's the bigger part of the soul that's beneath the surface of what we see in terms of action and the will. So, Michael, talk a little bit about the the metaphor that I was most fascinated from uh, my times with you and in, in learning from you. Is that idea of the iceberg, where the the tip of the iceberg would be um, the actions, the things that we see in a person's lives, uh, like what they do, what they say, that sort of thing, behaviors. And you're going to have to correct me because I could be wrong. But the the water line then uh, represents the above the water line represents those actions and and what we see, but below the water line would be Um, all of the deep stuff within the soul. And that's going to be the things that have happened in our bodies. That's going to be the experiences that we've had, um, the way our minds, our emotions. Can you talk a little bit about that metaphor? Because it's such a good one. And I have thought about it a lot in the last couple of years since working with you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So to give credit, because there's no original ideas, right? Um, Larry Crabb wrote about this in depth in his classic book uh, Inside Out from the mid 80s. And he borrowed the idea going all the way back to Dr. Freud in the late 1800s. And, and initially, it was just a metaphor that um, Freud was psychodynamic in the sense that he believed that there were deep forces within that led to uh, behaviors, whether compulsive or not. And if we go further back, isn't it beautiful that scripture usually has some reference or theme that later emerges either in the secular world or something like that. But in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, there's this passage that many would be familiar with. It says the purposes of one's heart are deep waters, and then comma or semicolon, but a man of understanding, a person of understanding draws them out. And there's two things there that we should pay attention to. The first is that um, God is less concerned with what's above the waterline, and with the iceberg analogy, we know that you know what sunk the Titanic was not the iceberg that was eventually seen, but the mass, the eighty percent that was below the waterline, that that really uh, derailed the Titanic. And so those purposes, that word might be translated as our motives, our hidden agendas our self-protective strategies, the ways that we have learned to cope and adapt. And the way that Crabb wrote about it in Inside Out is he spoke of it as a style of relating, that our external way we we relate to the world is really based on uh, things below the waterline. And an easy way to think of that is that what's below the waterline is a combination of deep longings, which represent our dignity, and the image of God in us, the yearning that Psalm 84 talks about. And then on the other side, uh, we thought of a continuum. It might be our brokenness, um, the assault upon our dignity and the image of God. It could include uh, sin and all the ways that we mishandle our pain. And so uh, I once thought of these as kind of the the two uh, shoes or the two feet upon which our human personality is formed, the image of God and the, the depth of desire and what we were created for, and then how we um, mishandle that, how we mistrust the goodness of God in that. And that's what's going on below the waterline. But then if we look from a clinical perspective and through neuroscience, we would see That uh, there's things like trauma and attachment issues, which we can talk about. And if I can just jump into this for one brief minute, feel free to interrupt me and redirect me. But, you know, in Surfing for God, I introduced this idea of brokenness as five W's. And this is really helpful for some people with closing this gap. And I'll run through them very quickly. The first W is wickedness. The second one is weakness, then woundedness, uh, warfare, and wiring. And early in my Christian life, in this place of the gap, I uh, spent all my time working on sin, what Dallas Willard called sin management, the gospel of sin management. And I thought God would be pleased with me if I got my sin under control. Well, I could never do that enough, especially with the brokenness of my background. And what I, what I came to learn as a professor and a counselor in my own journey was that sin takes care of itself when we address those other four W's of weakness, woundedness, warfare, and then our wiring, and that what deep repentance is about, because people will say, well, where's repentance in this model? Um, Repentance is really aligning ourselves with the love of God, and repentance is doing life differently in terms of where I find happiness and safety and security. So real briefly, that second W, weakness, We think right away, oh, I know what that means, because Philippians uh, 3, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Jesus is going to help me to be strong. But in fact, it's more the Pauline idea that weakness is not something to overcome. It's something that we're to steward, that we are to hold out with our hands loosely. I came into the world, you came into the world with a sense of here's my gifts, talents, abilities, strengths, etc. People will love me because of that. And my weaknesses, my vulnerabilities, the inherent limitations that we all have, I'm gonna kind of put those behind my back and I'll never let you see those. And Paul says, interestingly, in 2nd Corinthians 12, that in my weakness, and if your listeners were to fill in the blank, in my weakness, blank, most people would say, in my weakness, he is strong. But the text actually says, In my weakness, I am strong. And it's this idea of the upside-downness that our poverty and our vulnerability and our limitations actually is an advantage. And when we mishandle that and mistrust that, uh, then our trying to be strong or exerting our will actually becomes um, something that's an impediment to being able to live in the rest and the peace of God. The third aspect is our woundedness. That includes uh, ways we've been sinned against, whether somebody did that intentionally or not. Um, by things, present actions that happened that shouldn't have, and then wounds of absence, things that needed to happen and didn't. That can include traumatic uh, incidences and things like that. Warfare is less about the devil is hiding under a bush trying to take me out in the explicit ways, and the warfare is more, how have I been lied to and deceived in the places of my wounds and my vulnerability? Can I really trust God? Can I really trust others? And the final W is wiring. And I know that's what you and I have had a lot of conversations around. How does our physiological embodied self, you know, the average adult has, you know, depending on who you talk to, between 50 billion and 80 billion neurons in our brain and nerves and body. And what are the implications of that in terms of our habits and our inability to overcome besetting sins and things like that? So if we look at those four W's of weakness, woundedness, uh, warfare, and wiring, and address those in a relationship with God where we're really safe to look at anything and everything, the, quote, wickedness above the waterline loses its power. I like to think of it sometimes as it just dissolves uh, because our soul is living in a place of... God's got this, and I have the ability to connect with him in this deep inner sanctuary.
1: Mm. Wow, again, that's a that's a lot of great stuff. That's so Michael, I think, you know, everyone, most everyone, relates to Romans 7. You know, this idea that um, gosh, the things that I don't want to do, I do. Let's just talk about that for a second. It could be it could be alcohol or pornography or overeating or shopping, and the list just goes on. It's a massive list of things that human beings say. Gosh, I don't want to do that. Even as Christians, even I don't want to do that. Um, and you do. And then on the on the flip side, there's things I want to do. I want to pray more. I want to be more spiritual. I want to serve more. I want to, and I and I don't do those. So when Paul says in Romans seven, the things I I don't want to do, I do the things I do want to do, I don't. Most everyone really relates to that. But again, I think the typical response is, well, I'm just going to buy my willpower, change that. I'm going to have to figure out you know, how to just muster the will to fix that. And the thing that I was so struck in, in learning from you is that it's that stuff below the waterline that if it's not dealt with, and and you named sort of the with the w's all of those those issues but you also helped me understand that there's some really primary needs of the human person and i was so fascinated by that when you talked about seen and soothed and safe and secure and boy that's 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 uh, you set me on 2 years of work on that and i've been working on that certainly as i'm writing this book my next book the good and beautiful you but um can you talk a little bit about those things that are in some ways well they're related right i mean to the w's the s's
0: Yeah they're very much related they're interwoven and you can almost see um, not necessarily a one to one correlation but i'm writing a book on this right now called love has you and it's this idea mm. that um our our deepest calling is to live in a place where our soul is seen soothed, safe, and secure. So these ideas out of human development, and in particular, interpersonal neurobiology. And I have to give credit to uh, Dr. Dan Siegel, a psychiatrist in Santa Monica, who is not a believer, but who writes in really compelling ways that open windows to experiencing our Christian spirituality in different ways. And so he's the, the first person to take you know, decades of attachment research and neuroscience, and just have this idea that our fundamental need for an infant all the way through um, adulthood is to be seen, soothed, safe, and secure, and that these have aspects of um, first and foremost embodied neurobiology that our brain, our nervous system is really formed and develops according to our earliest interpersonal relationships. And as you, you mentioned, Gabriel Mate's book, you know, he looked through this lens um, about addiction and really ruffled some feathers because it's kind of an old model from the 50s, 60s, in some ways a carryover into the 70s of, quote, blaming the parent you know, for a person's mental illness or issue today. And this is in no way about blaming a parent. I am a parent of two, but it's about taking account of and telling the truth simply about um how we developed on that physical neurological level based on our experiences and you know when 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 the writer of Hebrews says in uh 12:2 that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith that he's telling a story that we can rely on um so let me just run through what these are um yeah let's do
1: story. that cuz i want i think yeah, i think if we take them one by one and that's been so helpful to me so i'll ask you scene, and then you say it and then let me see if I can summarize. Yeah, because that's what I love to do. So, so scene, What is that about?
0: Seen starts with the gaze of another upon a human person, um, and we can always reflect this back to the Trinity. Because somebody listening might go, "Well, where is this in the Bible?" Well, I have some chapters and verses, but I think ultimately our hermeneutic and our and our our vision ought to be the lens. In the language of the trinity which is of course interpersonal connected and relational so the trinity perfectly sees one another there's not a member of the trinity the father son and holy spirit wearing a fig leaf that says oh you can't you can't see this because i had this thought yesterday but if we look at uh, infancy and a child is born a parent looks at that child's face and eyes and i've heard you know before people say and i've probably said this Hey as long as there's 10 fingers and toes I'm going to be happy and that's the first thing I'm going to do is count their toes. Well, I don't know a parent in history that's done that. I think everybody looks into the face of their child. Mm-hmm. And when I when I held my my son, our daughter is adopted so I didn't have that that privilege, but when I held my son in my arms, I gazed into his face moments after he was born and I knew him. Which sounds ridiculous because how could I know him? He had just been born. But there was a deep knowing of, I've just met him, and yet I know him. Why? Because he's actually um, a part of me genetically, but he's also risen from my dreams. He's a part of my wife. And there is a knowing that is so deep, it's it's beyond words. And when the, the mother, the father, the caregiver looks into the eyes and the face of the child, something begins to happen, and it's very interpersonal and relational. Kirk Thompson has told me that, and he describes this in his book, The Anatomy of the Soul, but that the child, the infant is born with about 50 to 60% of their active neurons. Now, they have all of the neurons that they potentially need, but when the parent looks into the eyes of the child, think of ping, 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 like flowers in in fast motion that are, that are blooming, that gaze of the other. Um, awakens and develops the neurons to come online in the brain. So there is a seeing that is literal, that is interpersonal, that is uh, fluid in the sense that it's from person to person as it happens. And that gaze causes development. And I don't know Mm -hmm. if I read this somewhere, if I just started using the term, but that there is an interpersonal neurobiological arc that goes back and forth. And this, this, like, why do I believe in God? Because of this. There's something that can't be seen in that relationship that is absolutely positively real, that can't be measured with our eyes, but that is neurologically real. So there's life that is transmitted at a substantive uh, atomic molecular level just by gaze. And if we look mm-hmm. through the scriptures, uh, Psalm 27, 4. Uh, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple, uh, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I know I'm belaboring the scene point, but that— Oh, no, what, it's, it's
1: it's so good, Michael. And, you know, it, it connects with, you know, I've studied a lot of Hans Urs von, von Balthasar. And Balthasar has this, I mean, this incredible image he uses in, I think, his most important book, which is called Love Alone is Credible. But he talks about a mother— gazing into an infant. And over time, the mother eye to eye into the infant and smiling. And at a certain point, the infant responds with a smile. And and Balthazar likens that to our own spiritual awakening, to, to when when we see the love of God, we experience that gaze Absolutely. That, that absolutely, I mean that that's right at the heart, and that's why he says love alone is credible. It's at the core of his theology. Dude wrote like a sixteen volume thing, but a lot of it boils down to that image, that idea of the of the mother or the father with the infant, and that gaze. And I don't know if you've seen this, Michael, but uh, it's recently in the news. It was news a long time ago about these Romanian orphans. You know about that? Yes. yes. They 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 got nu- they were treated almost like livestock. They just changed their diaper and handed them a bottle. They got no love, they got no eye to eye and the the psychological damage in their later lives was huge. And, and is that what the scene is about? Is that an example yeah, of when, of not being seen?
0: Yeah, and I love Von Balthasar's idea that that's our spiritual awakening. You know, so when did you become a Christian? When did I become a Christian? Of course, there's a moment of decision, but what if I might say, and, and this is gonna stretch some people, what if I say I became a Christian when I received the loving gaze of a parent for the first time? And in my life, that was missing in some ways. My mom had clinical depression and went away to a hospital uh, for a couple of months after I was born. But that loving gaze is what prepares us and begins to open us to love, and uh, so many people are familiar with this idea that well, I'm really good at giving, but I'm not very good at receiving. This is where we learn to receive, and mm. Jesus' invitation to us is not just pick up your cross and die, but hey, follow me, and you're going to have to learn how to receive. And receiving is far more vulnerable. I was talking with a buddy uh, that we both won't both that we both know, and I won't say his name because again, this will provoke people like, Hey, that's a radical. I said, what what are your thoughts about original sin versus the orthodox idea versus first sin and all of that? And he said, I believe in original vulnerability and the original vulnerability is that the infant comes into the world, absolutely utterly dependent. And as we grow chronologically, intellectually, and physically, we become less and less vulnerable in one sense but spiritually and ultimately we have no control over what happens in the world as we're learning in a pandemic and with um riots and things like that and we ultimately as we typically define sin are left to ourselves Mm self-sufficient so the infant is profoundly vulnerable and the very first thing that they come to rely upon is that gaze you know going back to david in Psalm 27 4 Uh, the temple of the Lord and the house of the Lord. What is that? Today, it is us. You and I are the house of the Lord. And so David's saying, I want to gaze upon your beauty and dwell within myself, dwell and be present to myself where I can receive that gaze. Mm -hmm. And what if God's goal and purpose in our life where our formation would result in us becoming like infants who are utterly dependent and held and cared for Physically, emotionally, spiritually, um, and simply for eternity to live in the gaze of God's love, maybe that's what Jesus meant in Matthew eighteen that we're to become like a little child to enter the kingdom of heaven. I typically think of that as a three or four year old that's kind of fun and playful, but what if what if he meant that we're to become like a two day old? Nope that's too much for me, Jesus. That's a little too dependent.
1: I love it. let's go back to what you said about the Trinity gazing upon one another without the fig leaves. And of course, that's uh, you're, you're making reference there to the garden and after they were ashamed and they, they put the fig leaves on. So we got to talk a little bit about shame. But here's, here's where I want to key off of a couple of things that I, I think, well, that I've learned from you, and I, I, I want to dig deeper into it. And that is, so in my relationship with you, Michael, after I learned that you were a trusted brother in Christ, a person who really understood the soul, um, and i after i you know heard, learned your story which is you're incredibly honest with your story i mean your brokenness the addictions you know that your life the, the wreck that it was the the experience of the breakthrough the healing the couple of decades of of walking in freedom and all that but i thought this brother knows well as a friend of mine said he's got no stones to throw right he's not a, mm-hmm. he's not going to judge kind of a thing uh, Rich Mullins used to use that line a lot about certain people, they don't have any stones to throw. And, and I experienced you as a brother like that. So when I did, I, so when I felt comfortable with you and I did my deep dive and said, here it is, man, here's like, here's my, my history, the, the junk, the things that I've done. And, um, and I was, you know, it was a risk of vulnerability for me particularly, and I think that I'd even told you, like, you know, I'm a Christian author. I'm supposed to be perfect, but here's my imperfections and flaws and brokenness and even wickedness, right, to use one of your W's. And I confess, I shared all that stuff with you. And I was, you know, the shame is really was driving a lot of it because I wasn't who I wanted to be that, that, that thing about the Andy Crouch thing, who I want to be. And I'll never forget what you said, Michael, when you, you said, I'm really struck by your integrity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and I, I you know i i almost fell off the chair because i thought that's the last thing that i would have expected after i had just went this deep dive of here's the junk like here's the here's everything <laughs> almost everything that i have you know done that my brokenness and sin and then you said that and it really it, and so i want i'm connecting that with what you said today about scene, because in a way as i'm thinking about what you said and, and my experience in confession with you is that you saw me, like you saw me without the fig leaf. Yes. And, and, you, uh, and, and, and you affirmed me when you said, wow, I'm really struck by your integrity. Mm. D- can you explain, that was a weird moment for me. Maybe I'm doing therapy right now, but... <laughs> but <laughs> well, uh, we all are. We all are. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, uh, but I think it connects.
0: Yeah, there's so many things I want to say about that. First of all, that was such a joy and such an honor, not because you're James Brian Smith, the author, but because you're Jim Smith, the human soul, that you are such a good soul. And in that, if you will, confession to a priest, uh, spiritual director of brokenness, um, there was just this sense of you operating in alignment with God. You were saying. You know, if you had written something on your to do list that morning, it would be I want to be known and I'm going to put myself in that position. And so anytime there's the experience of a soul being known or knowing another soul, including God, because Old Testament refers to God as having a soul, um, that that is a joyful, worshipful, freeing, good process that just as God said in in Genesis 1, it is good, it is good. There was something so good about that. And so the integrity wasn't, you have integrity because you're quote, finally saying that you struggle with anger or whatever it is. But the integrity is when we are known, it gives us the opportunity to see what's real and what's true and what's the below Hmm. the waterline, if you will. And when we see below the waterline, we see one another's pain and fear and shame. And it's at that level where we're all on the same playing field. And I believe that this is, you know, God is inherently forgiving and merciful and kind and generous and all that. But I think that particularly because he has such compassion, you know, back to Colossians 3, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, that God sees below the waterline and the phrase that I've used again and again in my own story and Jesus has showed up in pictures in my mind where he looks at my worst and he puts his arm around me and he says well of course <laughs> which which is always dismantling to me because mm. I want to beat myself up and I want to prove to him how sorry I am and how much I hate my sin or myself and the embrace is just like don't do that of course I won't go into this now, but one of the darkest moments in my addictive life, one of the most shaming things, Jesus showed up there and he said, of course. And um, that he has no expectation for us to be different other than we are. Just as Paul Young says, he has great expectancy, but not expectation. And that expectancy is based on that he can see the end from the beginning. But that moment, and I'll never forget that conversation, um, that was such an honor to see the core of your being. And I think in discipleship, spiritual direction, mentoring, therapy, it's this opportunity to sit with a person and to uh, not to invade or to abandon, as the psychologist and mystic James Finley, who studied under Thomas Merton, said. It's that we sit with another, and we neither invade nor abandon. And in that space, we can be known. And in that space, we experience something of that perfect gaze of God, as well as of the loving parent.
1: Hmm. And it it, yeah, and it is so profound. That's why Michael, one of my nicknames for you is you're you're a to to quote the Neil Young song, you're a miner for a heart of gold. (laughs) And and I and I because I remember thinking when as you talked and here I am going, okay, here's, here's the worst junk. And, and then you're like, wow, well, that's an amazing integrity. And, and, and you're, you're, I mean, you listed a number of, of positive things and uh, it was that affirmation. And I thought, wow, this is, this is, I, I just thought I was opening up, you know, here's all the junk and you're going, oh, look at the gold. Like, look, look at the, and and I think that Imago Day that you referenced earlier, the image of God that's that's below the waterline, that was what you were pointing out to me, was saying, you know, really you're only here with me now, sharing these things because of your integrity, because you have a heart of gold, because you you recognize that um the sin, the brokenness, the things that have happened to you, all that stuff isn't right. Like that isn't. It it isn't, and so back to Paul's Romans seven. When Paul's saying those things, it's really his integrity saying, "I don't want to do what this, and I do want to do that." And uh, and I think that was what was so fascinating in learning from you, Michael, is there. Well, there's this heart of gold inside there that most people don't see because it's so covered up with with shame. And I'm yes. wondering too if if um you know if the the twelve step programs are built on this idea of, of, you know, c- confessing that w- we're not God, that we, we've made a mess. And even, even, you know, in the, in the 12 step meetings, when the person just stands up and says, you know, hi, I'm Dave and I'm a, whatever, an addict, alcoholic, uh, sex addict, whatever it is. And the other people go, hi, Dave, you know, <laughs> is that that same dynamic of like, you just shared your brokenness and we just affirmed your integrity or your yes. goals?
0: yeah and, and I've been a part of twelve step groups, and in those groups, uh, many of which are or most of which are unbelievers, they look past the junk because they go, well, that I know that, that's me too. And to use your analogy of gold, you know we know that gold is buried or back in you know the gold rush days panning for gold. you either have to dig for it or it has to be excavated, usually with some kind of explosion or unnatural. Experience of getting the gold out, or there's flowing waters and rushing water that carries that gold. And um, I like to think that our sin is the rubble or the, the 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 flowing rush over us in life that we go, oh yeah, I need to fix that, and then maybe I can be good. But that's that's what Paul talked about in Romans seven. He ultimately concludes that chapter saying, it is not me that's doing these things it is my sin nature and it sounds initially like paul is uh letting himself off the hook or going light on sin or justifying you know the devil made me do it or this is my terrible childhood but he's actually differentiating between the true self that body mind emotion will and inmost being he's differentiating between that and this this thing in me That is my um, self-sufficient mishandling of my pain and my vulnerability. So if we think about the rocks and the rubble in the gold mine, that's our sin and our brokenness. And our job is to really believe what's true in Genesis 1 and 2 about who we are, God's image in us, our preciousness, our value like gold, and to realize that that's our truest identity. Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, God has turned our heart of stone into a heart of flesh. Uh, We might translate that as God has taken our heart that's covered with rubble and debris, and he's pulled out this gold inside. And I think that's what Paul concludes. Who will rescue me from this? Well, it's, it's Christ who has united himself with me, and that's the place of the gold.
1: Ah, preach it, brother. That's so good because that's how Romans 7 ends with this. He's throwing his hands up and crying out, Who's going to rescue me? And then in 8, he's like, There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, Romans 8 1, what a verse. And then Romans 8, of course, is, you know, as Dallas often said, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. And Paul's saying, We cry out, Abba, Father, Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're his children. Yes. I mean, all the stuff that we're talking about you know, begins to make sense in a way when you're framing it through this idea of being seen and the inner brokenness and the shame. So, um, I mean, in our mutual friend, Kurt Thompson, you know, The Soul of Shame, one of the best books in the last few years to come out. Let's talk a little bit about shame. But before before we get to that, the other thing I learned from you is let's talk about the T word because we're doing a lot of S's with seen and soul and all these things, but um, trauma. And, and one of the things that you taught me is that um, there's, there's capital T trauma and, and, you know, lower T trauma. Um, And, and, and in my own experience, I'm fortunate not to have had, you know, big capital T traumas, which would be things like real abuse and violence and, the stuff that leads to the PTSD that, you know, soldiers seeing their friend blown up. And I mean, there's, there's, that's a capital T trauma, but there's a lot of, you know, lower T traumas that happen to us. Neglect, you, you talked about, you know, when, um, you know, someone doesn't get picked on the playground. And while that seems minor, it does lead, that's a small trauma and those add up. So let's talk a little bit about trauma and the relationship of shame and how we feel ashamed through some of those traumas. And it's not just that. I mean, the, the big T traumas, it's, it's it's a, well, why am I talking? You're the expert. So well, can you talk about the, the shame and, and trauma?
0: Yeah, first, let's, let's uh, define and differentiate shame. Most people will probably know this, but guilt is often defined as that I've done bad. Shame is the judgment that I am bad. Uh, guilt says, I've done wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. So shame is uh, a deception upon us but it's also an internal embodied experience of the eyes of another gazing upon me and I'm seen. And what is seen is not good. I come up short. I am deficient. I am inadequate. I am unlovable. So there's an infinite number of voices of shame to a particular person uh, and their story, but shame always creates distance and that distance might be as thin as the, uh, you know, micro micro millimeter of a fig leaf between myself and another but but shame creates disconnection and distance and um, then trauma i define it in in a simple way is any event experience or environment that overwhelms us and in particular our nervous system and leaves us alone and without an ability to cope so with children uh, that idea of being picked last on the playground, somebody might hear that, you know, if they were an Enneagram eight and go, that's ridiculous. You know, that's, that's not trauma. Um, but a four or a two or a one, they, we, see, we had to get the Enneagram in this conversation, right? They, right. they, they might say that's soul crushing. And then I go home and there's no one to talk to about that. Or I go home and um, I feel last in my family, in my birth order, or I can't talk about my feelings. So um, Johnny Arkson once said, when somebody said, oh, you're such a saint, you've suffered so much. And her response was, thank you. But suffering is relative. I've come to see that suffering is relative. And I find that most people um, significantly underestimate the nervous system impact of their family of origin and their experiences and their relationships, even from really good families. So if we think about being overwhelmed by an experience, an environment, or um, an event, one of the things that happens when we're alone is that we have to protect ourselves and defend ourselves. And with, with the original lie back in Genesis 3, that you can't trust God with the accusation, did God really say, and then um, you can be God. It really comes down to you're on your own. You have to be self-sufficient. You have to fend for yourself. So if you're going to be loved, if you're going to get your needs met, hide anything in you that couldn't be loved. Don't be known. Vulnerability is bad. And ultimately, you either have to perform which is driven by shame, I've got to be good, I've got to be worthy, or you have to um, disengage. And Brene Brown speaks of this as shame tells us we have to become large and big and powerful, or we have to become small and diminish ourselves. And, you know, that can happen in very subtle ways, not just through anger or shutting down. But those also have neurological underpinnings. So um, when our body is kicked in from a moment that feels like earlier stress or trauma, we can go into a fight or flight mode where adrenaline and cortisol surge into our system and we want to flee and, and, and run. And that's this experience of, I am not safe, so I have to get out of here and disconnect because there is no safety in this moment. Or with the fight, I have to flex my muscles and you know g- go against in order to shut down this threat. And then on the other side, um, oftentimes we our nervous systems literally freeze, and that's that sense of I'm kind of numb and cut off. And so even if love is there, and if care is there, I can't receive it because I'm just now in a place of being shut down.
1: Yeah, and and yeah, the, and I think that's how it's experienced, right? Is that we things happen, and um, and then we interpret that. And how we interpret that, then that's that shame that we can carry. And it is really soul crushing. I mean, I think that's that's the challenge, right? So, well, let's talk about a couple more of the S's. So we have seen and, and uh, what about soothed? What is, what is it that, what's that soul need yeah, to be soothed?
0: So important. And, and these could be considered sequential. They're all um, independent of one another. But generally speaking, if an infant is seen, then if they are in pain, if they're cold, because that infant can't regulate its own temperature, if they, if they uh, are hungry and their stomach's growling or their blood sugar is low, the infant can't say, hey, I'm hungry. They just cry out in distress. And the parent, the mom, the dad, the caregiver comes and attends to them. And so seeing allows for soothing. Um, and then the parent picks them up and there's proprioception, there's pressure and that pressure allows the infant's nervous system in that holding and in that hug to relax. And I always think of it in terms of an exhale, a sense of ah. And I remember when my kids were little um, that they would they would work themselves up into such an anxious frenzy and an embrace and a hug, you kind of hear this ah, 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 and then they just kind of release into this mm, sense of good image, Yeah. Now here's the thing. Um attachment and human development used to be thought the critical stage was zero to four, and then everything that we needed, we got or we didn't get. So those Romanian orphans, you know, if before uh, zero to four, they didn't get what they needed, they're just kind of done and, and poor them. And there's a level of profound um, harm and damage that can be caused developmentally that is very, very difficult, if not impossible, to recover from. But the theory has changed as we've understood the brain that these needs to be seen soothed, safe and secure are now from womb to tomb. So a married couple that's 50 or a person who's 80 on their deathbed, they have those same needs to be seen soothed, safe and secured. And without them, uh, an individual will become dysregulated and that will relate, relate and re, uh, result in relational difficulty marriage problems, some form of I have to become big or I have to become small. I have to over-engage or disengage. And that's often rooted in the nervous system, fear an experience of shame and or anxiety. So soothing teaches us if we've had it early on that whatever pain and distress is there, that someone is coming for me. Mm. Just like the parent who's downstairs Uh, They're having, you know, they're watching Netflix, but they have the little baby monitor on and they hear the baby crying and they go up. If that baby had a cognitive construct, it might say someone's coming for me. That gets then woven into our mind and our neural pathways. And it's actually good to be vulnerable because someone's coming for me. But Mm -hmm. most of us don't have that experience in a deeply embodied way So back to the gap, that on the one side, here's what I believe, but is anyone coming for me in my loneliness and my ache, or do I have to go act out with porn? Do I have to go act out and numb this pain through drinking? And both of those were realities in my life for a long time. Um, But as we grow, if we are soothed, then we learn how to soothe ourselves as well. And as a teenager, as an adult, we can have that same kind of exhale. Now, here's the profound thing about all this, and I think this is where you ultimately wanted to go. As we talk about all of this on a human level, and this is what my new book is about, Love Has You. What's the point of all this conversation? It's that our spiritual intimacy and restfulness and receiving the gaze of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can only happen to the degree that we are aware of the degree to which we've been seen, soothed, safe, and secure. Because if if a person has a wound around being soothed in their life, they will have a very difficult time in solitude, silence, or stillness just receiving the gaze of the Father. If somebody has profound shame in their life, you know, they could do centering prayer for the rest of their life and maybe have lower blood pressure, but they, they wouldn't necessarily feel any more loved by God. And so uh, the, the the spiritual practice becomes, can you sit in that space, even if for two minutes and allow God to gaze upon even the shame hmm. and allow that gaze to dissolve the shame and to uproot the shame and to open the eyes of your heart, to see that that shame is a lie and that you're in fact the beloved. So every listener of your program is gonna know all the truths that you have uh, written about and taught about and all of the great uh, friends and, and mentors and writers that you've known that speak of us as the beloved and and you know dearly loved. And yet our nervous system said, uh-uh, not gonna go there. I mm-hmm. think this is why one of Jesus' last acts on earth was to wash Peter's feet. Because Mm. that was obviously, the text tells us it wasn't about cleanliness of his feet. Jesus had already said, Peter, you're the rock, and I'm going to build my church on you. If Historically, I think it was about a year or more earlier. But Jesus knows that evening that Peter is going to be profoundly ashamed because of his failure. And Jesus knows that if if he's going to actually be useful to build the kingdom and have the kingdom built upon him, he has to learn to receive. so hey Peter, it's your turn I'm going to wash your feet and Peter goes, "Nope, Lord, you, you're not going to wash my feet. in other words, I can't receive. I've got pretty good willpower mm-hmm. i'm a I'm a performer, I'm going to go for it. I, I remember what you said, and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. It's all kind of scary and, and confusing to me, but man, I'm prepared and ready to go. Nope, unless you can." Bear yourself, be known in a vulnerable way, and receive from me. You're going to have to go hang yourself like Judas. See, Judas said, I'll be self sufficient in my failure. And Peter wept bitterly, which wasn't, oh, I really feel sorry, God, but he was able to embrace his poverty and his failure and be loved in that. And so Peter was seen, but he was also soothed. Where's that? Well, um, they're cooking breakfast and Jesus shows up. In John, it says, "Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me?" And um, Jesus asked that question because he knew he knew mm-hmm. Peter's heart. He saw the gold, but Peter didn't see it because he saw my betrayal and my failure. I could see his, you know, him his head hanging. But the story tells us in John that he saw that it was a Lord, and he jumps out of the boat, and we can imagine him swimming, you know, and then going through the shallow water, and it's awkward, but. He risks there being seen, and then he's soothed. And then Mm. the other S is, Peter's safe. Wow, he's got me. Love has me. My Lord, my Savior, who I've known for three years. I thought he was just in the grave, that this whole thing was a hoax, and that I've wasted my life for three years. But he's here, and I'm safe, and I can rest and trust in this. I'm secure. And that's all embodied. That's all emotional. That's all mental. And his will is freed up to run out of the boat because he's been seen and soothed.
1: Wow, that's a great I was going to ask for an example, and you gave a, a a great one and a biblical one that I think most of us can can see the connection with with peter that's That's incredible. Well, Michael, there's two what we call power narratives talk a lot about on this podcast. I want you to just as we close to to take those two power narratives. And, and talk about these attachment things of seen, safe, soothed, and secure. So they are, uh, I'm one in whom Christ dwells and delights. And the second is, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Um, I call them power narratives because uh, I know in my own life, and I've heard it from countless people, that when you make those thoughts a regular part of your thoughts from above, like when, you know, I try to say them every day, I'm Jim in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, that as I do that, it's so healing. Why? Why is it? Based on, what, based on the framework you've been talking about, why are those two narratives so powerful?
0: Well, I'll speak personally. I, I heard that from you, and I have prayed that, not consistently, but I try to say that every day. And our staff here at Restoring the Soul, uh, we had that for an extended period of time on our whiteboard. Um, And I encourage people to pray it. And so truth resonates with every other part of reality. So if there's an embodied reality, but let's let's take those, uh, one in whom Christ dwells. Well, the first thing that does is that it undoes the lie in Genesis that you can be God because you have to take care of yourself. If I'm one in whom Christ dwells, that he gazes upon me, that I cannot run from him, as I run, he's like Velcro and attached to me, but because he's on my shoulders, I turn and I see him and I can't see him because he's attached to my shoulders and I run again and he's still there. So that one in whom Christ dwells and delights is um, I am taken care of. I'm, I'm this infant here and my parent sees me and looks into me and their heart comes alive. And when I'm distressed, when I'm in pain, that same Delight and uh, dwelling, which is being with, 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 with. That's such a big word. Oh yeah. Um, is that I'm attended to? Another big word for development is that is the parent attuned. And so this is the statement of I'm the one in whom Christ dwells and delights. There is this ultimate good, benevolent, generous, kind, merciful reality called the Trinitarian God, and. They are with me and for me, and they are attuned to me. The second part that I live in a strong and unshakable kingdom you know, that kingdom you've spoken and written about the rule and the reign, uh, God um, being with us and heaven happening here as opposed to out in the future. But let's just speak of the kingdom as the very heart and center of the Trinity, and that that exists in us, that the very uh, Trinity exists in us, and that the kingdom, the safest place in the world, is in that reality, in the kingdom. And so um, that kingdom is strong. Uh, it's the the energy, the reality, the relationship that created the universe, the stars, the the moon, the oceans, um, and that kingdom is unshakable. That it is a, a sanctuary that is so firm that our soul can say i have a place to go when i'm in distress when i'm not seen when i feel shame but more than that there's a place in which i already exist and um i love the idea of power narratives because i would take both of those and summarize your statement as this at any given moment where my body is dysregulated where my where my world is being turned upside down or dismantled, or where I'm suffering, there's always a deeper, truer reality within. And it's not that I have to go read the Bible and find God out there or up there, but I find Christ within the hope of glory within me, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. and so um, I you, the listeners, are the ones in whom Christ delights and dwells, and we live in this strong and unshakable kingdom. That's the deeper, truer reality right now, and that allows my soul to rest.
1: Amen. Preach it, brother. That is good stuff. That is really good stuff, and um, gosh. Well, Michael, you've spent countless hours, the 10,000 hours of M- Malcolm Gladwell in helping folks break through, um, restore their soul. And uh, so your vast experience, your studies, everything that you've done to get to where you are uh, is such a blessing and restoring the soul, I highly recommend it for anybody um, who's interested. You're way backed up though. I mean, I know you guys have so many people uh, trying to get into your ministry, but um, what's the website that people can go to to learn more?
0: It is restoringthesoul.com and uh, just, a, just a little shout out again about what we do. When, when people have been struggling and they can't wait months or years to experience a breakthrough or to get unstuck in one or two weeks, we provide a context for people to get that breakthrough. And it's not magic, but there is an aspect where we see supernatural things happen, where people can be uh, seen and safe and soothe. And it can be a secure place to, to realize and see that that gold is there. So uh, I just am so grateful that out of my brokenness and my experience of redemption and restoration, that, that the Lord allows me to do this because I'm the last guy on the planet that I ever thought would be bringing restoration and healing to others.
1: <laughs> well, you know, one of my favorite slogans is God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And, uh, you know, we all are, the Bible's a who's who of unqualified people that God takes and God has just done so much in your life, Michael qualified you and you are a part of that qualification. You've studied, you've, you've done it, you've done the work and, and what a blessing you are in my life. And so glad you could be on the podcast today.
0: Oh, I'm honored. And this has just been fun. Uh, It's a great, great conversation back and forth. And I, I trust that something will be helpful for folks.
1: Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, blessings on you, brother. Stay safe in this pandemic, and we'll uh, we'll keep praying and growing, and and uh, and and get through on the other side, right? But uh, look forward to seeing you again. And I know we're scheduled to see each other in spring, so um, good Lord willing, we'll see you then, and we'll be in touch before.
0: Blessings to you and yours, Jim.
1: All right, thank you, brother. Well, I hope you enjoyed this things above conversation between myself and Michael John Cusick. I hope you join me next time for episode 82. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and you can always subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope is always is that if one day you're asked what's on your mind your answer will be things above